This is the Business Storytelling Show with Christoph Trapp. Name a top 20 storytelling podcast and a top 5% podcast globally. Christoph chats with thought leaders and experts to share tips and tricks that can help you tell your company's stories better to drive business results. Available wherever you listen to podcasts, live streamed on major social media channels, and part of the DB&A television network, available on most U.S. television sets and streaming on Roku and Amazon Fire. Here's Christoph with today's episode. Let's go. Let's go, business storytellers. How's everyone doing? Hey, today we want to talk about website accessibility. Now, back, I don't know how many episodes ago, quite a, quite a ways, Regine Gilbert came on. And my biggest takeaway was from her that if it's annoying to you, it's probably not accessible. That's a very, very easy rule to keep top of mind. But I wanted to find out a little bit more about why are companies struggling with this? Why do we have to keep talking about it? And why is it not just, you know, second nature? Why is it not just part of the process? I'll give you an example really quickly. I hope I did it correctly before we went live. But on my LinkedIn Live, I have to click and click and click on the closed captions. That is a secondary option. Why is that not the automatic option? If I don't want closed captions, I can turn it off. But why do I have to click so far into it to figure that out? I don't know. I'm not in charge of it. I'm just in charge of talking about it. So today, Stacey Turmel uh, is on the show. She's a website regulatory compliance attorney, digital accessibility subject matter expert. And you can check her out on the internet is for everyone dot com. I wanted to check it is actually dot com. So Stacy, welcome to the show. Christoph, good to see you. Thank you. Super excited Thanks to be so here. Much for, thanks so much for making the time. So tell me about accessibility. I mean, is that just, am I just making that up? Uh, does that need to be more top of mind for companies as they're building their websites or, or is it already? I, I would love to say that it is, but that would be wrong. Um, and I would love for it to be more top of mind. I would love for it to be the culture of, of where we're at right now. But unfortunately, that's not true. There are a few organizations and companies that have made it a priority for them. And I think that they are reaping the benefits of it. But the culture shift, as far as the rest of corporate America, the rest of the world, if you will, is just not there yet. It's just not there. Not thinking about it. So when you say reaping the benefits, uh, I mean, a, a few come to my mind. First of all, when you have an accessible website, people are certainly going to use it uh, at a much higher rate, right? Because um, it's usable. I'll give you an example. I actually use the zoom in functionality on my iPhone, like, my life depends on it. I mean, I mean, it doesn't, but you know what I mean? Like I really, yeah. it makes it much easier for me to see some things, but there is a lot of apps that aren't optimized for that zoom in feature. So you have text that's like so crunched together now that you can't even read it. You can't click on it. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's a problem too, right? I assume. Oh, that's a huge issue. And I mean, you, you pointed out something that it like to your point when, when you started talking, it's not just, if it's annoying to you, it's probably not accessible. 
I mean, sometimes a lot of these uh, app developers are trying to put so much information in such a tiny space. I don't know about you, but it's super frustrating to me if I'm trying to move through something and get to a certain area and it and it takes me somewhere that I never intended to go. I mean, that's something that experienced by people who are, you know, either low vision um, and are trying to blow up their their information and everything's just all crunched together and they end up being sent somewhere and they get frustrated. I mean, we really don't have a lot of patience when it comes to accessing information on the internet. We want it instantaneously, want it, we want it to come to us immediately and we don't want to get jerked around. Um, and so to your point, you know, if things move smoothly, if they're easy to navigate, if it's easy to go through a checkout process, if it's easy to fill out a form, if those things are easy, they're going to be used more frequently. When they're used more frequently, businesses are going to make more money. So when it's accessible, it's actually easier for everyone. And I'm just sharing just from my own personal experience on some of these areas. And so when you said reap the benefits, are those the main benefits that, that companies are reaping or, or are there others that we have? I mean, certainly at some point you would think people buy stuff from you because they can actually interact with you, right? I mean, if I can't click on your text because it's so crunched together to, to finish a purchase or, you know, in the case that I'm thinking of, I would never keep my subscription to the app because it just doesn't work. So at the end of the day, uh, people can lose revenue too. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, that's a big part of it that I, I would love for organizations to just em embrace a little bit more. You have a $60 billion market out there of people with varying abilities who want to be able to shop online, who want to be able to purchase things from the convenience of their home, from their devices, who want to be able to do these things without having to rely on a ride, rely on making a phone call to try to get somebody on the phone. Good luck with that these days, right? I mean, with how short changed everybody is with staff and just also just moving to a digital environment of the lack of, of personal contact, we want to be able to automate as much as possible. So you have a whole group of, of, of individuals out there who want to have access to those conveniences and there are constant barriers being put in their way, being put in our way. And, you know, so you reap the benefits from making things easier and attracting more customers, casting a wider net, but you also reap the benefits from, you know, minimizing your risk of a lawsuit. My experience though, has been that most people jump on board when compliance is what it's making them do, not because they wanted to do it. So I would hope that the business upside would be something that's more encouraging businesses to participate in this as, a, as an aspect of being more progressive and you know more uh, forefront-minded with regards to technological sophistication versus being dragged kicking and screaming into a more accessible platform. I mean, at some point, it, it becomes an expectation, certainly, too, right? I mean, somehow, um, you know, people have to use your, your digital properties. Now, when we talk about accessibility, I mean, give me a definition as much as you can. What does that even mean? I mean, I certainly have issues with my eyes, right? So everything, if you could see my screens, you know, everything is blown up so much. Uh, I mean, uh, some people can read it if they were walking down the stairs into my office uh, in a ways away. Um, but but what else? Uh, what what other things um, come into play when we talk about accessibility? 
Well, probably one of the biggest areas, Christoph, is um, being able to navigate a website using a keyboard. Um, people who are low vision and blind can't usually use a mouse. And the reason why is because they don't know where the mouse is. I mean, think about that. Think about trying to navigate a website using a keyboard, using the tab keys, using the arrow keys. Um, there's also a big difference between text on a photo and a picture of text. People who use assistive technology rely on that assistive technology to scan a website and scan the information that's going across that website to dictate it into their headphones or through their speakers to tell them what information is on that website. So they expect to be able to move across menus, move up and down through information and have that information read and dictated to them through their assistive technology. If that information is not readable, meaning a picture of text, which is not accessible, then they're not getting the information. If your menu items on your web page are not coded properly, such that somebody who's using a, a screen reader or other form of assistive technology doesn't know that there is information underneath that drop down menu, you're losing that person's attention. They're not gaining that information. If the whole point of your website is to share information about your organization or information about your product and services, then you need to make it accessible so that people can get the information you're trying to tell them. Keeping it the best kept secret is not really promoting your business. Very, very interesting. And, you know, when I think about like some of the things when you mentioned and you describe the different areas, I'm thinking of websites that have accordions, you know, like they open up or whatever. And, um, a lot of web websites used to do them. I don't see as many anymore, but sometimes, but that could even create an accessibility problem perhaps, right? Because it's hidden behind the, the dropdown. Absolutely. That's a huge problem. And in fact, in a lot of the different website building platforms that are out there, there are still some platforms that have accessible web templates where the lion's share of their web templates are not accessible, which is, is concerning that basically 95% of your templates you're pushing out there for people to use and build for their e-commerce site are starting from a place of not being accessible, meaning they are not coded properly for the drop-down menus. They're not navigable by a keyboard. Um, they're, they're just not accessible, and so information is being lost. So it presents a risk from a compliance standpoint, considering the onslaught of litigation that's been going on for the last five years. But more importantly, you're losing business. And that's the biggest issue. Well, and maybe most importantly, it's not the right thing. Yeah. There's <laughs> that, right? There right? is that. I mean, yeah. There's that too. I know sometimes that's not necessarily, you can't assign dollars to that as, as easily as saying, well, people can uh, buy something from us. So when somebody sues a company, this is, I assume, under the ADA, right? So a person has to... Um, sue a company or, or how does that typically look? So what we've been seeing a lot, usually the ADA would be enforced by the Department of Justice. Um, they would be the agency that enforces the rules, regulations under the ADA. Um, and we've seen some Department of Justice enforcement that has been, there's been an uptick in it probably over the last couple of years. It's mainly been with regards to uh, private entities that are offering vaccine portals. So, you know, something that's important to the, the health of, of, of individuals trying to access vaccines. 
um, and the inaccessibility barriers that, that are there. But generally what has been going on since 2017 has been private lawsuits by what I call serial plaintiffs um, who are suing companies and they are you know, making demands. Some of them are, are making you know, legitimate demands, meaning your website's inaccessible and I can't access your website. And some serial plaintiffs are just out there um, you know, machine generating demand letters just from a profit model standpoint, which you know, I find to be incredibly disappointing and not the spirit of the ADA. Um, so there is the ADA can be a basis for a lawsuit. In addition, several states across the country have their own uh, state accessibility laws. Like for example, California has the UNRU Civil Rights Act, New York has a human rights law um, and, uh, and other states. But those are the two that I, I primarily have experience with in that area. Um, the ADA provides for remediation when it comes to websites and it also provides for attorney's fees. It doesn't provide for damages. So it's not like a personal injury lawsuit where you've had a car accident and you're hoping to you know, cash in on a big check. So in other words, the whole point of the ADA is to make things accessible. Some of these state uh, accessibility laws do actually provide damages for violations. Like for example, the California UNRU Civil Rights Act actually provides up to $4,000 per violation. And it, you know, it depends on the court that you're in front of on as far as how they calculate those, those violations. So, you know, things, things to consider. So there's a, a variety that's going on right now. But in 2021, we actually had over 4,000 lawsuits filed um, in federal court that were ADA website compliance lawsuits, which was uh, about a 20% increase and about um, an 80% 80, 80 increase over what had originally been going on back in um, 2017. Interesting. So if I would sue a company, would I have to show that it actually affected my accessibility of the website? I mean, if I'm saying, you know, uh, I can't watch your videos or whatever because I, I, I don't hear well, uh, but that's not really the case. You know what I mean? Like the, the, I mean, is that, do you have to prove that or, or how do you, um, how does that typically look? Well, um, there's a, there's a couple of different things going on. So across the country, we have a split uh, with regards to the, the different circuits as far as how they interpret, whether somebody actually has what's called standing, meaning the right to bring a lawsuit. There are some of the federal circuits that say you need to have suffered a concrete injury um, that has caused you harm. And because of that, you have a basis to sue for, you know, redress of that injury. There are other districts and, and circuits that follow what's called tester standing, meaning you have tested a website, it's inaccessible, and you are bringing this cause of action on behalf of other people who could be suffering, but you yourself haven't necessarily experienced an injury. Does that, that make sense? Yeah, absolutely, and that's that's well better stated than than how I just put it. Um, so I appreciate that. So when you know, I use WordPress um, for the most part on many, many, and I've used other um, CMSs over the years too. And my perception is that in WordPress, a lot of things come out of the box, right? Like it is created with the best practice in mind, whatever the best practice currently is. And if it doesn't have it, let's wait an update or two 
and it probably will get fixed right along the way. Um, so why do these inaccessible inaccessibility issues, why do they happen? Is it because people are building their website like they're the first person in the world to build a website and they bent it so far that they didn't think about something? Or I, I guess I heard you talk about um, what I would describe as maybe an embed form, right? If you have an embed form, they can't read it. A screen reader might not be able to read it. Maybe there's forms out there now that can be read. I don't know. That can probably change too. But why does it happen if we follow best practices building our website that they wouldn't be accessible? Well, there could be, you know, people build websites at different times. And so what, right. you know, what what they may have done last year may have drastically changed in the in the past year as far as updates are concerned. Like I was saying to you, you know, a lot of these CMSs are actually putting more accessible web templates online. What's really, you know, hard to tell uh, an organization or a company is when they've just completed a complete rebuild. They're super excited about it. You know, they've launched it. It's beautiful. They got a little shining light from above. And then you tell them that their website's not accessible. I mean, it's, it's really hard to take when they've invested a lot of dollars. And then in order to fix it, they're really looking at a rebuild. I mean, that's really, that's really hard to hear. And so, you know, what do businesses have to do at this point in time, especially small businesses, they're in a place where they're having to prioritize. Well, if it's not on fire in front of me today, then I might not necessarily be focusing on it. You know, maybe I just had three people leave to start their own gig or whatever they're doing. And I'm short staffed as much as I'd love to make my website accessible. I just, you know, don't have the ability to focus on that until I have to have the ability to focus on that. And unfortunately, by that point in time, it's too late, right? Now they're, they've either received a demand letter, um, they're having to remediate their website. And usually when you're trying to jump through hoops at the last minute, you know, hair on fire situation, you're not necessarily able to do as much selective sifting to pick a good resolution that's going to fit your needs. You're just grabbing on whatever you can do, which sometimes... It will actually result in bigger problems for you in the future. So, you know, it, it would be great if we could say, yeah, every every time, you know, we get an update on the technology, everybody's website's being updated, but that's just not the case. Um, and even just looking at some government websites that were built, you know, two or three years ago, there's been significant changes that have been made that would actually result. It, it, it needs to be a complete rebuild. Think about a large agency-wide rebuild, how hard is that going to be to accomplish? And then think about dollars to be dedicated to make that happen. And then the competitive bid process that needs to take place. By the time they even get to the finish line, the technology's changed again. So I guess for certain organizations, they feel like they're always behind. Um, unfortunately, you know, there's plaintiffs out there who are looking to capitalize on that, some legitimately and some not so legitimately. So just a lot of things to think about. I mean, is there a way to just, uh, I don't want to say get around it, but stay ahead of it just by having a plan, right? This is how often we review it. This is how often we update it. And I'm just thinking, I mean, there is so many changes. You have to build your your, your um, digital properties on a system that is easily, somewhat easily updatable, right? I'll give you an example. Back in the day, um, I was I was I started a content program for a company and this company was on a website that you had to talk to the developers for everything. You wanted to change two words in a sentence. Wow. You had to send that to the developers. 
And, you know, really, if you're going to have a content program, that doesn't work, right? So you have yeah. to change the system. So at some point, maybe you just have to figure out a way, how do we change the system? How do we change what our website is built on? How do we change? How do we review it? Or I, mean, I don't know. I'm just, it's, it's much easier for me to say that than uh, for people to actually do it. Well, I think to your point, you know, it's important for organizations to recognize, you know, what are their needs? You know, with different organizations that I work with, when we're talking about what's called monitoring services or really just periodic testing services, how often are you changing your content? I mean, if you're an e-commerce site, there could be changes being made daily, you know, so that might be an organization that might need like monthly monitoring. Then there are other organizations and companies that are changing their content maybe once every three or four months. So maybe they need, you know, biannual monitoring. But at the end of the day, it's, we're not talking rocket science. It's, it's, it's difficult because it's tedious and it takes time. But quite honestly, once you learn, and this is another reason why I like to do training, once you learn what needs to be done and you actually start to practice that as your habit, then what you see is that it's not that difficult to implement. And then you just bake it in from the beginning and you're going to start to reap the benefits of that from, you know, higher SEO, more traffic to your site and minimizing your risk. So the way I see it is that it's a win-win all the way around, but it's going to take some time and an initial investment to get you there, but it's going to be well worth it. Well, I was actually, I thought I had that written down as a, as a comment uh, when you mentioned the pictures with uh, alt text. I mean, there's many, many other reasons why companies should be doing that uh, in addition to accessibility, right? For SEO purposes, um, also for you to find the images again later when you have to right. search for something. I mean, so there's two good reasons already. Uh, I'm still shocked how many companies have pictures saved under, you know, DISC 0 Two five eight or yeah, file eleven oh seven, right? I mean, it's like what is I, that? I mean, it still happens, but you can't find it ever down the road. Um, so, tell us in the last few minutes here. Um, so, you do website regulatory compliance, but how do people? Can people hire you, or or how do you work with people? Yeah, I work with people whether it's just on a consulting basis that they're like, Stacy, I just want an hour of your time just to find out what is going on out there. I mean, it's it's hurting my head to even think about it, you know. Um, other organizations come to me because they received a demand letter from a plaintiff or they've negotiated a resolution and they have settlement terms that they need to comply with. So they need perhaps a forensic audit of their website um, and training for their team and then follow up monitoring. So I work with organizations from that standpoint. Also, if there's been a demand letter and they're trying to negotiate a settlement just because it is an area of the law that not every general counsel or legal team is familiar with. I work with legal teams on a consulting basis in in that way. And then just small businesses, businesses of varying sizes based on what their needs are. I mean, if you have a 10-page website, you probably don't need a forensic 45-page audit that would be a litigation (laughs) report. You know, that's something that we could spend a few hours on and I could give you some really good ideas and, and some recommendations on how to how to fix it. Um, if you have an enterprise website, you have an e-commerce site that's like about 12,000 pages, we're going to need to spend some time. But the great thing about, you know, uh, e-commerce sites is that they're usually built on templates, right? We don't customize each page for the 5,000 products. We're replicating that page. And so if we can implement a fix 
on that particular page, then we can replicate that fix across all the pages. Will it take time? Yes, it'll take time, but I usually provide a hierarchical legal risk management remediation protocol when I work with organizations. In other words, we start with the highest risk pages first, and then we triage from there because that's what's going to take you out of the firing line, as I call it, of the serial plaintiff. Let's get there. Let's get through your best sellers. And then let's move on to thing, you know, everything else. And then let's start implementing, you know, an accessibility protocol from the ground up so that you can bake it in from the beginning. And then I'm not having to live with you. You're training your team. You're learning to fish on your own and you're running your business, which is what you want to do. The internet is for everyone.com. Check it out. And um, so when you just mentioned, I think I I would be surprised if this is not one of the problems why people run into this. When you said, if I have 5,000 e-commerce pages, they all should be the same template. But I bet you there's companies out there where somebody didn't know how to follow a best practice and they actually have 2,000 templates for those 5,000 pages. And of course, that's when we run into trouble because we didn't follow the best practices. And I'm the first person to tell you, I like breaking some best practices here and there, but probably not when it comes to building a website, the, the foundation. Yeah, people like things that are predictable and easy to navigate. Let's be honest. Let's keep it simple. Yeah. Keep it simple. The last question here in the last uh, 45 seconds or so, Uh, On your website, it says on your LinkedIn, I've provided legal guidance to Fortune 500 e-commerce companies, state and local governments, et cetera, et cetera. Is this mostly an e-commerce problem or is it more likely to happen there or or who is who's most likely uh, running into issues? Any small business is a target right now, Christoph, any small business. And a lot of times the serial plaintiffs are actually tagging smaller (laughs) businesses because you know, they're usually not as well versed in this area of the law. And so out of panic and fear, they'll usually just flip over and cut a check, which is not solving the problem because somebody else can come along five minutes later and send you another demand letter. So you got to fix the problem. So keep that in mind. Yes, I stand by my opinion. Your your business needs a website. Uh, really, I mean, I haven't thought of very many businesses that don't. Quite frankly, probably most everybody does, um, but it needs to be accessible as well. Stacy, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate you making the time. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. That's a wrap. Thanks for tuning in. Please rate and review our show on your favorite podcast channels. And don't forget to share this episode with your networks. We appreciate you. Until next time, let the best stories win.